A few years ago, one of my minister friends was talking about how important poetry had become to him, both as a preacher and in his spiritual life. And I loved hearing him lift this up, partly because it helped me realize that the same is true for me. Poets are the mystics and sages and prophets of our time, aren't they? The best parts of the Bible, to my mind, are the poetic parts, the Psalms, and also the stories and the parables. The parables, which are in prose, but have a certain poetry about them as well, don't they? The parts that are more history or those old lists of rules, they haven't aged quite so well, have they? <laughs> Just saying. I'm so grateful that in our tradition, the canon isn't closed, that we see a wide range of, of words and other things like songs that we could think of as holy scripture, right? That as a preacher, I get to share inspiration from wherever I might find it. And in this month when our worship theme is the way of creativity, I find myself wanting to share poems with you for the sheer joy of it, the sheer joy of hearing them and also being moved by them. And I was thinking the other day as I was thinking about writing another sermon, you could have a whole worship service with just poems and some silence in between and some music and a little prayer. I would show up for that. Maybe you would too, I think you would. We just heard the lovely poet Emily Dickinson, who some of you know, wrote and lived very close to home, just out west a little bit in Amherst. Some keep the Sabbath going to church, she wrote. I keep it staying at home with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus. I just wear my wings, and instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches, a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. I love that poem, and I do have to confess that a little part of me that lives back here somewhere is saying, do you really want to encourage people to keep the Sabbath at home? <laughs> what if no one comes to church? And I hear that voice, but there's another voice over here somewhere that answers back. They know this already. They, that they are free to spend Sunday wherever they want to and however they want to. And so, yes, I am super grateful for you all when you want to show up here. But I understand, like the airlines say, you have choices. And I understand and celebrate with you, there are plenty of places to keep the Sabbath. 
and be in the presence of the holy. And this is just one of them. I'm grateful for the openness of our faith tradition, which encourages us to live lives like Emily Dickinson's, going to heaven all along. And isn't that what the way of creativity is about? Finding heaven and joy and connection right here with these companions and in the stuff of our daily lives. My only concern about what we're doing this month, lifting up creativity and the arts as a way to greater depth and joy, is that some of you will have a voice inside your head saying something like, I'm not creative, I'm no artist, right? Because few of us are professional artists and not a whole lot of us have the skills in painting or sculpting or weaving or music or any of the arts that we would think of that would qualify us for what we call artistry, right? Nevertheless, you are the poet of your own life. You are the artist of your days. Do you see that? Do you understand? Do you ever look in the mirror or look at your life and see that you have this invitation to creativity in just how you spend your days? And if you don't see that as artistry, I hope that you will come to understand yourself in that way. The minister and mystic, who was the dean for a long time of the chapel at BU, Howard Thurman, once said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And so I ask you, what makes you come alive? That is a clue to your artistry, isn't it? And it can be almost anything. Back when I was young, a longer and longer time ago now, about a year after I graduated college, I moved from a small town in eastern North Carolina, where I was the photographer at a small town newspaper, up to the big city of Washington, D.C., because my best friend from college was getting a new place to live there, and he wanted me to be his housemate. And I was looking for a change, and so I moved from this little small town in the middle of tobacco country to what felt like a big city to me. And when I moved, one of the things I brought with me was this big table, about this long and about this wide, that my grandfather had made years before from these thick planks of cypress wood. And I'd had that table for years. We'd had it in our home. When I was a boy, we ran our electric trains around and around on that table. And then later, when I got into model rockets, I would build them on that table. And one day, it was probably around the time I was in middle school, I used one of those X-Acto knives that I used for my model rockets. I used it to carve the initials of this girl I had a crush on in middle school. You can still see them faintly in that tabletop. 
It wasn't fine furniture, if that's not obvious already, but it was sturdy and useful, and we still have that table, and I love it. Well, when I carted it up to DC, it was kind of rough and wobbly, and it needed some work. So one day, I set up outside on our back deck, tightening the joints and doing a little trimming on the edges and then refinishing it all just to make it look better. And I was so happy doing this work. And at some point in time, my housemate came out to check on me and see what I was doing. And I looked it up at him and I was so happy, I smiled. And I said, you know, I love carpentry so much. Sometimes I think I must have been Jesus in a previous life. <laughs> And my friend, who happened to be an earnest Presbyterian who grew up in North Carolina like I did, he was shocked and disapproving and thought that I should not be saying such things. But I could say to him now, and we're still good friends, you know, it was Jesus who said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So don't you think that our friend Jesus wants us to be happy and fulfilled? And is it creating a good and essential part of that? So today I want to ask you, what makes you happy? What brings you gladness and satisfaction and joy? And are you doing enough of that? Are you getting enough of that? There are things that I like to do that make me feel good and that remind me that there is still goodness and beauty in our world. Gardening does this for me, particularly at this time of year, just getting my hands in the dirt and bringing some beauty and order to some of the chaos left behind by winter and the wind. The wind we've been having the last couple of months. Oh my gosh. Also, as I mentioned already, working with wood and with other simple materials. I just love that simple act of making or fixing something. I love hand tools, the way an artist must love her paints and brushes. The tools we use, aren't they some of our partners in creation? And with use, can't they become these holy things? I think so. So, I wonder, what do you like to do? What gives you gladness and purpose? What inspires you and encourages you? What materials do you love to work with? And what kind of settings do you work best in? I think of the ways that Dawn Kroll, our sexton here, takes such beautiful care of our building. And if you ever talk to her about this, and I have, she looks around and she says, I just love being here. And she says, I don't mind it. I kind of like it when I'm the only one here and I can feel the spirit of this place, and I'm making it prettier and cleaner. 
I think of the beautiful baked goods some of you brought here just over a week ago for the reception following the memorial service for Pat Feller. All these little creative, delicious symbols of your love and care and commitment. I ate too many of them, but... I think of how our community meals folks make food with so much love to feed those who are hungry. I think of those of you who gather for meditation on Tuesday nights and your practice of sending metta, loving kindness meditation, out into the world and to particular people you are concerned for. Aren't all these ways of creating of bringing something more, something so needed into our world. In the Hebrew tradition, there's a phrase, tikkun olam, which translates to repair the world. And isn't anything we can do to create more goodness or to mend what's broken, whether that's tending a relationship or bringing more kindness or compassion to those who need it, or working for any kind of justice. Isn't this all part of repairing the world? And doesn't it also help us when we do these things? Don't we benefit too? Doesn't it repair our lives as well? Especially at this time of year when, as Denise Levertov wrote, so much is in bud there is this invitation all around us, isn't there, to just live into the fullness of life, to bask in these gifts, to be seeing and appreciating what is beautiful, because we need the solace and the hope that beauty brings, don't we? And at the same time, to be opening our eyes and our hearts to see what is broken, and unjust and working toward righting those wrongs as best we can. We have only begun to love the earth, Denise Levertov wrote. We've only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How could we tire of hope? So much is in bud. How can desire fail? We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy, only begun to envision how it might be to live as siblings with beasts and flowers, not as oppressors, not as oppressors. My spiritual companions, isn't this the way of creativity? Isn't it also the way of wholehearted living? This way that prophets and poets have always called us toward. To be partners in creation is to imagine living as siblings with one another and with our earth and her creatures. To be grateful for all these partners and companions. On this day when people remember and celebrate their mothers, may there also be space in our hearts 
for mourning the mother you may not have had, that you wished for. May there also be space to mourn the opportunity to be a mother that may not have come to you, though you desired that. May there also be some space for those of us at the more male end of the spectrum. Might we acknowledge some things that don't always get acknowledged, like creation is something that really is more naturally the province of women. If you've ever attended a birth, I think you know this, that in that space, women are in charge and men are not needed at all. Maybe in a little supporting role, but really it's good to stay out of the way. And, and if men are in charge in that space, should they be? Because in that space, in my experience, it's a humbling place for a man. And it should be. What would our world look like if women, if mothers were in charge? How about we do the work, and I know some of you are doing this already, of creating more spaces where women are invited and encouraged to lead and have more power and agency over what matters, especially these days, including their own bodies. May Sarton wrote a poem about the dance between creation and destruction in which she invokes the Hindu goddess Kali, who is a fierce embodiment of female power in all its fullness. It's a long poem, and it's not an easy one to read. It's called The Invocation to Kali. Here's a little bit of the invocation at the end. May Sarton wrote, Help us to bring darkness into the light, to lift out the pain, the anger, where it can be seen for what it is, the balance wheel of our vulnerable, aching love. Put the wild hunger where it belongs, within the act of creation. Help us to be the always hopeful gardeners of the spirit who know that without darkness, nothing comes to birth, as without light, nothing flowers. Praise be for the darkness and for the light, for these lives that we have been given, and for these invitations to be partners in creation now and always. Amen.